Well, today we come to the close of Peter's first letter. And even in his conclusion, we note several things of special interest. So let's look for them together. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace. Be to you all who are in Christ. The first thing we notice when we're reading this letter from Peter is that Silas actually wrote the letter. Uh, Silvanus is the full name of Silas, a name more familiar to us. Silas was a leading man in the church at Jerusalem and a prophet in his own right. He joined Paul on his second missionary journey and became his right-hand man, even being imprisoned with him on several occasions. Paul uh, lists him and Timothy as co-authors of the letter to the Thessalonian church. And here Peter says he has written this letter through Silas. Now, Silas was a Roman citizen and most likely well-educated, and that actually explains the excellent grammar in a letter from a Galilean fisherman. Now, the critical scholars have often charged that Peter couldn't be the author of this letter because of its flawless grammar and perfect form, but those scholars apparently overlooked the fact that Silas actually penned the letter. Now, whether he wrote as Peter expressed the ideas or merely cleaned up Peter's grammar after he wrote it, we don't know. But he is no doubt responsible for its excellence. First little detail we find in the conclusion. Then we note that Peter is sending this letter and his greetings from she who is in Babylon. Now, Babylon probably refers to Rome, as it does in the book of Revelation, because we have no record of Peter actually being in Babylon, but we know he often ministered in Rome itself. And then he sends greetings from she who is in Babylon. Now, he doesn't identify who she is, and it's possible that he's referring to his wife. We know that she accompanied him on his journeys, but it's more likely that she refers to the church in Rome. He also sends greetings from his son, Mark. Those who feel she refers to Peter's wife suggest that he had a son named Mark, but most likely the Mark mentioned is John Mark. Early historians tell us that John Mark, the same one who accompanied Paul, you remember, on the first part of his first missionary journey, later became Peter's assistant, and that he wrote down everything that Peter had to say about Jesus, and that's how we got the gospel according to Mark. It was from what he was taught by Peter. And uh, so chances are really good that uh, it was John Mark he's talking about here. 
Then we find something uh, curious and uh, a little interesting. When Peter says in the closing that we should greet one another with a kiss of love. Now that sounds a bit strange to us. But for centuries, a kiss of love was part of Christian fellowship and worship. It began as a Jewish custom when a disciple would kiss his rabbi on the cheek, as you remember Judas did Judas in, or Jesus in the garden. And the early Christians were encouraged to kiss one another as a sign of love and acceptance. Paul often wrote that we should greet one another with a holy kiss. And it actually became part of the communion service. After a prayer for the elements, participants would kiss one another to show love and forgiveness and to demonstrate that they were all sitting at the Lord's table together. Now, this was a beautiful custom, but it was open to abuse. So by the fourth century, the kiss was confined to those of the same sex. And it lasted in the Western church in that form until the 13th century when the custom changed to kissing a cross and passing that to someone else who could kiss the cross. And uh, that continued for, for quite some time. Now, I'm not going to be so bold as suggest that uh, we ought to begin kissing one another in our services. Uh, but surely we can communicate what was being communicated by that. The early church, the Christians expressed their love for one another, especially before partaking of communion. And it wouldn't hurt us to do the same. You know, a, a handshake, a, a hug, a verbal expression of love would not be out of place in worship. And it certainly wouldn't be out of place in a celebration of what used to be called a love feast. So, if you're willing to tell someone that you love them before passing the communion tray today, go ahead. At least they'll be expecting it. Uh, maybe next week you want to forget it. Uh, well, that, that kind of covers the uh, interesting things that we can readily glean from Peter's closing. But there's something else I think is really significant there. There's one phrase that really caught my attention, and I think it merits our full attention for just a few minutes. I'm trying to talk fast, if you hadn't noticed. Uh, we've got to give our Sunday school teachers a little time this morning. But I think this is important, really important. And that is the phrase that Peter used, the true grace of God. Peter said that he wrote this letter to exhort us and to testify to us concerning the true grace of God. But why does he say the true grace of God? Could it be that there's more to God's grace than we think? Well, to try to understand what Peter had in mind, I reread the letter looking for references to grace, and I didn't have to go very far before finding one. In his introduction, in the second verse, he said that he wanted us to have the fullest measure of God's grace. 
the fullest measure of God's grace. So there must be more to God's grace than we usually think about. You know, we generally think of God's grace in the past tense. What he did for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. But if you read through 1 Peter, looking for it, I think you can trace a past, a future, and a present element of God's grace. And for us to have a full appreciation of the full measure of God's grace, we need to understand all three aspects of it. Beginning, of course, with God's grace in the past. And there's no question God's grace was expressed to us in the past through the sacrifice of his son. And Peter begins his letter by reminding us of what Christ has done for us, calling our attention to the prophets who even foretold when this expression of grace would come and how Jesus would suffer and the glories that would follow. Now, this is the grace most of us think about when the word is mentioned, what Christ did for us, how he went to the cross and gave himself to sinful men that he might offer to them the forgiveness of their sins. Obviously, this is no small thing. This is the heart of Christianity. The salvation of our souls is possible only because of God's past grace. Our hope of the eternal rests on what God, through Christ, has done for us. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that is grace. Doing for someone what they cannot do for themselves and doing it for them even though they do not deserve it. That's grace. And indeed, grace has been expressed. God acted. But that's not the end of it. Peter goes on to remind us of grace in the future. Now, God's not finished with us. We've got something amazing to look forward to. And Peter referred to it as grace, saying we are to fix our hope on the grace to be brought to us when Jesus returns. When he comes back to take us to our eternal home, we will experience grace in its ultimate form. And what he has planned for us so far exceeds anything we can experience today that Peter constantly reminded us of that and that we must not let this life get us down. He says we are aliens here. We are strangers visiting for a short time. We must keep in mind that our true citizenship is in heaven. There's a future planned for us. You know, through what Jesus has done for us, we can know victory over sin now. But someday, even the effects of sin will be removed. There will be no more hurricanes there will be no pain or sorrow or tears, only joy and peace 
and contentment in the presence of God himself. God is going to treat us far better than we deserve for all eternity. And that is grace. And knowing that, knowing that it's coming, makes life easier to take today. But even that's not the end to God's grace. It's not just what he's done in the past and will do in the future. It's also what God can do for us in the present. And the bulk of what Peter had to say deals with God's grace in the present. You know, God is involved in our lives now. His grace is available for living today. And Peter talks a lot about it. Tying the life that we live to the grace that's available if our life is lived in obedience. There's a linkage there. He's made it clear that if Jesus is Lord of our life, we will yield our rights to him and to others, and grace will come from that. He taught us in this little letter to be submissive to civil authorities and employers. He instructed us on the role of submission in relationships with each other at home and in the church. And he holds out the specific promises of God's favor if we will follow these instructions. He said if we act out of good conscience toward God, we will find his favor in life. And the word favor is the same word we translate as grace. God will give us the grace we need for life if we act in obedience to his will. If we strive to do what he said, he will help us do it. Now, that may not lead to popularity. Doing what he tells us to do might even lead others to alienate us, to persecute us, react against us. But again, Peter assures us that if we will patiently endure the suffering in this life, we will find what? God's favor, God's grace. He'll strengthen us. He'll sustain us. He'll walk with us through life. And that is all part of of his grace in the present. Peter also speaks of the grace of life in an interesting way, saying that husbands must treat their wives as fellow heirs of the grace of life. In fact, he says if they don't, their prayers will be hindered. See, God wants to be a prayer answering God. He wants to give us everything we need and more, even when we don't deserve it. And that, I believe, is the grace of life. 
His continual presence and granting our desires and giving us what we need. That's the grace of life. It's a relationship with our Creator in which He answers our prayers and abundantly provides for us. And Peter wants us to take advantage of that provision of grace. But he warns that it is available only if we recognize that that grace is not ours alone. And that we don't abuse it. God only answers our prayers if we treat other people right. And we recognize that the grace of life is available to everyone. God's grace is never to be used selfishly. As if it just belongs to us. And so Peter then says we are to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And in this, I believe, he is thinking of the various gifts God has given to us, assuring us that each of us have been given a special gift that's to be employed in serving one another. God, in his grace, has seen to it that each of his children has a unique role to play in life and that each of us has a special job to do in the church. If we are good stewards of that grace, everything we do has a divine purpose. You know, there's no reason for any Christian to get bored with life or feel useless. God has given you a job to do and the ability to do it. Just be a good steward of that grace and you will have a full, meaningful life. And never forget that your ability and strength comes from him. For as Peter quotes from Proverbs 3, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. God gives his grace to those who humbly acknowledge their need for it. So if you feel alone or helpless or inadequate, confess it. To God, Let him know that you need him and that you want him to be involved in your life. And he will. He will. And finally, never lose sight of the fact that the God of all grace is now perfecting, confirming, strengthening, and establishing us. Whatever happens to us is either part of God's plan for us or can be used by Him for our benefit if we will let Him. He's at work in our life now, perfecting us, confirming us, strengthening us, establishing us. That is what He is doing now. That is His grace at work today. In all of this, however, our degree of submission determines the degree of grace we experience. And Peter wants us to discover the fullness of God's grace, so he calls us to absolute submission to our Father in heaven.
That is the thrust of Peter's letter. Submit to a God who loves you so he can bless you with the fullness of his grace. What an amazing message in this amazing little letter. The fullness of God's grace. All of God's grace. Past, future, and present. He will forgive our sins because of what He did in the past. He's promised us an eternal inheritance with Him that makes whatever we have to go through now, what? Less than nothing compared with the future He's planned for us. And He's promised to walk through this life with us. Empowering us, enabling us to do what He's equipped us to do, what He's called us to do, what He wants us to do. And if we will do it, our life has meaning, it has value. Everything we do is for His glory and His honor. And His grace enables those gifts we give back to Him to be received with His good pleasure. That, my friend, is the true grace of God. It's much broader than we sometimes think. And if we want that that grace, we've got to acknowledge what he's done, what he's going to do, and what he wants to do now. And we acknowledge that by surrendering to his will so he can give us the fullness of his grace. Let's stand.